this episode, I'm joined once again by Tim Howells to discuss On the Emergence of an Ecological Class, a Memo by Bruno Latour and Nikolai Schultz. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paying patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you'd like to support the podcast as it runs off patronage alone, please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Tim Howells, thanks once again for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Thank you, James. Lovely to be back. We are going to be discussing a book that was published in 2022, so just last year, um, on the emergence of an ecological class, a memo, uh, which is co-written. It's sort of a, it seems to, it reads like a dialogue, which has then taken the form of this 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 memo towards ecology between uh, Bruno Latour and I'm going to pronounce it Nikolai Schultz, I imagine is the pronunciation there. Uh, and I believe this was originally published fully by Wiley, who were kind enough to send me uh, a copy. So thanks very much to them. Um, this is a, a sort of a philosophically practical book about... So Latour writes, as we've spoken about before, Latour writes a lot about the philosophy of ecology, what we're to do in our, our contemporary moment regarding the crises, uh, especially the relationship between man and nature, um, or man and ecology. And then this short little text, I mean, it's about 80 pages in the edition published by Wiley uh, on the emergence of an ecological class, is really to do with the notion of, okay, we've discussed... With this sort of, there's been this acknowledgement of the philosophy, and this still is a philosophical text. But now it's the the question of sort of the the what to do with that transition between philosophy and practice, and how the practice might look communally, and the and the difficulty of that, and what that really takes to move into that that moment, that 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 period. I think. Um, so yeah, um, I guess. You know, you, you you emailed me to say we should probably discuss this little text. And um, I guess we could begin with really the, the, the history of it and what, what you would say the purpose of it is. Yes, and I think the designation as a memo, book is called a memo, M-E-M-O, is relevant here because it's a memo and not a manifesto, we might say. Um, what is a memo in English? Well, it's something, it could be a note to oneself, a note pinned to a fridge door to remember to get the milk or something like that. It could perhaps be a more formal policy document, perhaps a government, governmental or ambassadorial record of some policy position that is presented. Uh, the book cover itself, particularly in French, uh, in the French edition, I think has the form of a pamphlet. And so there's a nod to, as it were, the revolutionary spirit. So it's important, first of all, that it's called a memo. I think the language and format is something here to note. Uh, we have numbered paragraphs. Uh, it's a language free of notes and references, so it's clear and simple. This is a text for everybody. It also allows uh, Latour and Schultz to be somewhat rhetorical with outside Latour's uh, normal uh, domain of um, philosophical or sociological language. Um, but there are surely uh, nods to uh, pre established formats. Uh, the numbered ordering suggests perhaps the form of a treatise. 
So we might think of something like Spinoza back in the 17th century in his ethics demonstrated in geometrical order. Um, so definitions and axioms and numbered from which he attempts to derive propositions and corollaries. And Latour has actually used that form in his earlier career in a text called uh, Irreductions. So there is some um, precedent. So all of those things, I think I agree, James, they present this text as something that is philosophically derived, but of practical and even pragmatic and perhaps even political uh, function. I think, yeah, I think as well, I would emphasize the first point you made that it's that it is key to uh, mention the the end of the title because if you were just to take on the emergence of an ecological class you can imagine that as some sort of uh, almost a 68 you know it's quite a powerful almost it is a manifesto like title like there's going to be some revolutionary big thing and I think it's it's very key to emphasize in an era where there seems to be countless manifestos propping up about you know uh, sort of a language of attack against our crises this notion of a memo is is uh, not to sound too pretentious i hope it's it's opening up a dialogue which is um dare i say it, a little just a little bit more delicate than the manifesto sort of the grammar of manifestos which often i think is uh counterproductive to the situation we find ourselves in because it sort of seems to take one energy, one sort of destructive energy and reutilize it in the same form in another way. So the notion of a memo, I think is, yeah, I'll say it, it's just a bit more gentle. And I think it's a better, <laughs> it's a, a, a healthier approach, I think, to, to the crises. And I think parts of the context in which this book was written are relevant here. Um, Nikolai, who's a friend of mine, um, actually met Latour as a student first of all Nikolai was a student on one of Latour's philosophy of nature courses at Sciences Po around somewhere around 2015-16 and so they began uh, drafting ideas together in that mode over the years that followed um, working sessions writing sharing of ideas and so on but crucial to the backstory here is that uh, they wanted to have this manuscript ready in whatever kind of form, before the French presidential elections of uh, April 2022. Um, there was another deadline, uh, more sadly, which was Bruno's own health. Mm -hmm. um, Bruno passed away in October of 2022. Uh, this book actually was published a few weeks before April of that year. So it did um, come out before those presidentielles. Um, and thankfully, Bruno was around to see that and in some respects to defend it in the weeks that followed and leading up to his sad passing in October. Mm -hmm. And he was very nervous of this book um, because it was his most overtly applied political text. And so I'm glad that he had the chance to uh, speak about it in some public forums to follow as well. The book was actually a a good seller in its French context. So I gather from the numbers I've been given around 20,000 copies in the first few weeks, slowed down somewhat due to the situation in Ukraine and other things going on. And it has had an influence 
on, for example, the French Green Party, the uh, Europe Ecologie des Verts, uh, and some of the reorganization of that party after their ostensible failure, where they actually got less than 5% of the vote in that April presidential election. And it has had influence on youth at uh, environmental movements in Germany, uh, Denmark, which is Nikolai's home country, and elsewhere. So already this book, just uh, a year or so on, has its own story of influence. Mm. It's interesting you mentioned Latour's nervousness, because now you mention it, it is almost the inverse of a philosophical, the typical philosophical career, where the uh, you begin with a sort of youthful idealism with... Uh, manifestos not so much memos but manifestos and revolutions and classes and then you might move into books such as facing gaia which are more um more expansive in their abstraction and dealing with the topic in a more expansive way so i can under i can understand latour's nervousness as especially with a title which folk, uh, contains the word class which i you know thought wow you know we there's there is something very risky about that and uh, you know there was a question so we have this history we have the purpose of the text is this sort of transition between the philosophy and the practice but i think it's holding a middle ground uh there was a question about ecology and politics which i think we can get to but really i do want to begin with uh i think it's probably best to begin with the 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 term in the title which almost dare i say it once again almost seems archaic in 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 philosophical terms of wow we, we really are we really are going to be talking about class in a sincere way that's a courageous move so what is um why why do you think it was that uh latour and schultz um thought it right to discuss class and, and also what is the ecological class well latour and schultz would certainly think this is a useful contact even if it does have an outdated uh, connotation because it's both descriptive, we might say, it corresponds, it marks out real differences in the world, but more importantly, that it's performative. So it creates an agenda to fight for, if you like. And I guess they would say that if the old concept of class was somehow determined as a social class, so it's linked to it, we might say education, wealth, occupation, income, or whatever, that the new concept of class, the new our new understanding of class must be quite different. There's a cutting through or a diagonalization of previous class models. And we might say to begin with that we notice this ourselves, don't we? If you go to a climate protest march in London or elsewhere, you'll find yourself standing shoulder to shoulder with people that you may never have expected to before. If you're of the right, you might find yourself shoulder to shoulder with a lefty. If you're a lefty, you might find yourself shoulder to shoulder with someone whose views on nationalism, protectionism, the economy would be very, very different from your own. So there's something about this environmental crisis that is transversal to left and right. That would be the first observation. So we need a new concept of class and Latour will, Latour and Schultz are going to diagonalize the left and right and say our new concept must be uh, an ecological class and everybody else. And this memo therefore is diagnosing what that division is, how it can be um, 
brought forward in society and what it means if and when it finally arrives. Mm. Now, this is this is interesting because in my recent discussion with Dougald Hine, who's just published uh, Amongst the Ruins, his book, he says, um, for those that don't know, once again, a, an environmental activist too, who is alongside was alongside Paul Kingsnorth and uh, uh, that sort of sphere. Um, but in his talks about environmentalism, he says that uh, one of the most difficult things he finds was and is talking to politicians because that it, politics in the face of the the crisis that we're sort of talking around the climate crisis whatever you want to call it uh the the exist the existential crisis of the human race <laughs> uh the planetary crisis throw as many names at it as you like one of the problems is sort of explaining and under helping politicians understand that really the politics they're talking about is is not dying it's just fading away and politics isn't necessarily going but i think what Latour and Schultz would be looking at here with this diagonalization is the admittance of, um, you know, the difficulty of saying, well, hang on, if you're at the climate change protest, and, and as you mentioned there, shoulder to shoulder, left and right, shoulder and shoulder, well, what happens to left and right when they become shoulder to shoulder? And what happens to that, uh, we could say, traditional orthogonality that we, we project onto politics? What really happens to that when there is something, I don't want to say higher, because I don't think Latour would probably agree with, but a higher cause that, that is there. And I think that politics is just uh, disappearing. And it seems to me that this book is one of the first attempts to really try carve out a new grammar to use going into the future to say, look, we can't use the old... Um, ways of speaking about politics and all the other signifiers we used to use. I mean, this is going back to our first discussion with Latour on uh, modern and, and these grand signifiers. Even those ones we used, I mean, they, they're outdated. They don't work in the face of this. And uh, I think this is the first step in where do we go and how do we build, how, how do we begin to build something new? And there's a delicacy with... Uh... Latour himself, uh, I'm glad you've referred to Latour and Schultz because this is an entirely <laughs> co-authored book. But in Latour's case, he was candid about his own upbringing and background, uh, acknowledging he hailed from the French provincial bourgeoisie. Um, he was the he was born into a well-known Catholic winemaking family, the Maison Louis Latour. So he himself comes from a certain class definition. And I think there is a, a, a delicacy and a self-acknowledgement of this new ecological class that in which he wishes to participate. But yes, I agree. There is a radical redefinition of politics here. Um, categories of left and right entirely exploded. Um, but what we're not seeing is a, uh, a uniformity. There will still be friends and enemies, as it were, in this new situation. It's just that they'll be reconfigured. So we move, as he says in the first section, as they say in the first section, we move from class to classification struggles, if you like. I mean, I just want to stay stay with class for a little bit, just maybe on a more personal level, because Latour, you know, Latour's admittance of coming from a very bourgeoisie wine family. I mean, do you feel uh, Latour is obviously a bit older than was was a bit older than both of us in terms of generations. Do you feel that in in your day, um, class was 
still a palpable thing that you could you could notice where you were i don't there was remnants of it where i was but i think it just it didn't hold as much. I don't know. I, it's an odd thing to say, I guess. In Latour's admittance of his class is almost like uh, perhaps an admittance of a, a cycle long since gone. I don't. I just didn't see class that much when I was younger. Maybe that's my own bourgeoisie privilege. Is there a sense in which class is that which binds us together in spite of multiple differences? Um, and I guess um, you and I grew. I mean, I grew up in sort of lower middle class north birmingham different factors going on but i think i did have a sense of my class and then going to university where there would be different class structures involved there as to who was in and out of certain groups i think in a british context or an english context we can probably recognize that to some degree but he's using class as a, a trope here. He's saying, you know, what is that? What is this thing that now binds us together in spite of differences? What is fundamental? What do what do we uh, what what do we find as the lowest common denominator of a group identity? Mm. And he's saying that that is radically reallocated by environmental crisis. Mm. Seems uh, to get a little bit more abstract, abstract, I guess. There is an admittance there of, I think, I'm going to try stretch this, finitude and, and infinity. <laughs> so what I mean by that is in, in relation to class, individual, subjectivity, you have this absolute expanse of options of what people can be, what individuals can do, especially in the modern world, the cult of the individual, of anyone can be anything they like and do anything they like, consume what they like. And the seem in relation to what you said about the lowest common denominator, all of a sudden it's almost uh, this, this um, what's it called? Is it Damocles? Sword is, is the finitude of, you know, the finite nature of, well, the lowest common denominator is not part of the, the infinity of the individual. It's something that none of you, uh, none of you want to look up because you're all running around, scrabbling around, uh, consuming. Um but all along there is something that probably that does bind us, which is the finite nature of the string that's holding <laughs> this sword above our heads. And we probably need to uh, rally together in some sense and uh, realize that as our thing that binds us is something that is finite. And it's a, re a resource limitation, I guess, but also the finite nature of the planet as our habitat. I haven't have, I hope I haven't gone too off course there, but... Well, I like that nuance a lot, James. And actually, the definition of class is that which provides some sort of boundary to who we are. So if you're from a certain class, historically, you can move around in different ways. Um, your income level could change, but you could never fundamentally move out of your inherited class structure. Mm. Some ways, I think um, there's a good point there, because what Latour and Schultz will claim in this memo is that um, in some ways the themes that have mobilized modern people before now are those of um, endless prosperity, um, increasing liberation and fundamental freedom. In other words, um, perhaps there is no class designation to modern people. Moderns are those who believe they're uh, emancipated from all the ties that bind, that there is a horizon of endless development and progress ahead of them 
Um, and of course, the planetary crisis is that which puts the huge red stop sign in front of them and perhaps brings us back to a concept of class. Uh, if class are the if class is the um, thin, um, as it were, sort of unseen cellophane wrapper around our lives, then the environmental crisis once again reasserts that. It says there is a limit to your emancipation, growth and progress. It's the limit provided by planetary boundaries. Mm. So you need once again to see yourselves as a class, even though previously you thought you'd freed yourselves from all those ties so the emergence of an ecological class perhaps sort of takes us uh, uh, back behind the interlude of modernity. Mm. There's a lot going on there. But you did mention one word, which I think is key and needs uh, unfolding because it's it's the buzzword of the day, I think, for, especially for people dealing with environmental issues, which is progress. And there has been because pro progress, emancipation, limitation, these all get bundled together. And I think progress, uh, you have progress, and then you have progressivism. And you have progress as this thing which has now become tethered to production, which I think is is somewhat accepted by the memo, where on page 12, they said, production no longer defines our sole horizon. And progress is being conflated with production, with a new technology, with people, we're not, you know, if you say we're not progressing, people will hold up an, an iPhone 201 or whatever it is now um, with, you know, an extra camera that they put on it this year. And I think the problem there is that when you conflate progress with that form of technology, there is this understanding that if we don't keep producing, we also don't keep um, emancipating in a healthy way, that if we stop producing, there is this sort of inbuilt belief because the word progress is tethered to it that all of a sudden we'll just roll back to the dark ages and i don't know uh it'll be some super severe feudal patriarchal society and everything else will go um but it's this complete sort of misunderstanding of the whole situation where um almost uh there's there's a difficulty in um all all the different domains of thought get so intermingled that we think we all have everything has to follow in one direction and it's almost like we need to draw a line we need to move back to limits which is really a big theme of this book especially in relation to the notion that production and consumption and finite resources has been sort of completely synthesized and drawn too far into abstract thought and things which will help the inner life um and uh, the, the the ability to untether the two is very difficult, it seems. And this is why we need an ecological class, I guess. Well, I agree with all of that. And we can debate, can't we, at the level of economics, or we could take a donut economics model and critique the idea of growth. That would be agreed with by Latour and Schultz. We could talk about degrowth mechanisms and so on. But I think what this memo is really offering us is that psychology of progress. Mm. Um, to be modern is somehow to be committed to the idea of endless growth, <laughs> of a trajectory and a horizon that is guaranteed. Uh, we've talked before, I think, James, haven't we, about the religious connotations of that that's a sort of eschatology and i think we discussed the idea that it isn't surprising therefore that if you'll grow if you've been brought up to believe in that horizon and a crisis puts that stop sign in front of you 
it's not surprising there should be some sort of psychological um, challenge or even collapse um, because it's not simply a change of lifestyle, but a change of horizon that's being forced upon you. And this memo is agreeing. Uh, here we are. Here's note um, paragraph 18. Uh, quote, we are missing the mental, moral, organizational, administrative and legal equipment to address our planetary situation. Another quote, we remain stalled at guilt, anxiety, impotence. So this text is trying to get down a level and ask what sort of ideas are needed if we are to uh, uh, find ourselves on the right side of the class divide Mm. in the times to come. Guilt. (laughs) What are we guilty about? Do you think our consumption... If I'm reading that right, do you think I was sort of we're doubling down on our consumption out of some sort of sunk cost that we feel guilty about the situation, so we just turn a blind eye and keep keep consuming? Or am I reading that wrong? It's a strange notion, I think, to live in a time where I'll draw in something. Uh, it's an intro. I mean, to just to draw in this religious religious angle, actually, because I think you know someone such as John Michael Greer would say that progress is the is the secular myth and secular religion of the day that that's and as you've said this the eschatology it has its own eschatology and horizon and um there's something interesting there is, is in a discussion recently with david lloyd dusenbury about his recent book politics of jesus the political life of jesus christ and he mentions the difference between um trial and guilt and crime in a secular way and a religious way and so um in a religious sense uh, and I guess I'll lean on the Catholic vision because we're talking about Latour here and, and, and Schultz, of course, as well. But religious sense, if you're 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 automatically guilty, <laughs> you're a sinner, you're perhaps even a wretched sinner or a wretched worm, but you're automatically guilty. But when you go confess, you can confess or in whatever form you confess, whatever different denomination, you can confess the worst of the worst, absolutely everything you've ever done, the worst of the worst, and it will be absolutely forgiven. Whereas, but you're automatically guilty. Whereas on the secular world, you're automatically innocent until proven guilty and everything is given to you to not admit to anything. You know, all these laws are thrown in to not make you admit until you are proven guilty. And so there's, I think there's something in there about if you live in the secular world in relation to sort of the thing that we know is going on, it almost seems to we, we need to bring in some form of religiosity to say, we're all in this. We are all perhaps a little bit automatically guilty, but it's not. There is maybe the question there is what is the forgiveness that the ecological class can bring in to allow us at least to sort of appease this? Like, ooh, what have we what have we done to our habitat and the habitat of everything else as well? But I think I don't know. It just I, I, there's something there that I thought was interesting about that sort of modern secular ability to sort of say, well. Not until you've not until you've proven it, um, and perhaps there needs to be a jump back to that religious form of look. You know, we're 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 fallible, we're fallible creatures. Yes, and I would tentatively suggest he might mean the word guilt there in the way that Heidegger advanced the German word schuldig, mm-hmm. uh, which we might translate not so much as guilty but as responsible. So the call is a call to responsibility. What sort of agency footprint have you left behind? Um, 
what sort of um, relationship to the world are you setting up? Because as you know, the diagnosis here is of modernity, um, is of modernity having focused on production, as you said earlier, but having lost sight of, if you like, productivity, or we might say flourishing. Um, Marx was right in that he focused on the material conditions of human flourishing, but he was wrong in that he was preoccupied with human production. Human production is a subset of the productivity given to us by the world. And so Latour and Schultz are opening out our vision to see how um, our production, our growth, our development, our progress as humans is entirely framed by the habitability conditions of the world, the planetary boundaries. So they will offer mottos like, this is the difference between the world we live on and the world we live off. Mm. Are we merely living off the world, consuming its resources in an endless cycle? Or are we living on the world? Or we might say in the world. Are we functioning as units within an Earth system uh, such that what we do has an impact and the world in turn has an impact on us? And a word that they use to get at this is the word, uh, well, in English, the word um, engendering. Um, There's something about our situation that has lost sight of engendering, what it means to be a living unit within this system, um, what it means to see one's role in the context of a world that's bigger than us, that has boundaries, system, edges to its system, and so on. Um, so in that sense, it's a call to the material, but it's a call as Marxism does, but it's a call to be even more material than Marxism ever was. Mm. So the big, the big question, I guess, to just try tackle it now, because it's, I think it's something we've discussed in previous conversations. It's like, it is for me, one of the questions of the day and page 17 uh, Latour and Schultz state, nothing has come along to translate these anxieties into a mobilizing program program of action on a par with what's at stake. And so the question, I mean, beneath that statement is the question of why in the face of everything, to draw this back to what you you just said about more more material than Marx and this 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 seems the separation of being in the planet or of the planet or in life or of life. Um, it seems that we're very much in the planet, you know, in a human sense, we're in this habitat, which is all very comfortable in the way that we talk about it. We talk about it and we're anxious about it and we have all these protests and have all these debates. But it seems perhaps that the, that what in the way that they phrase it, the translation of the anxieties into action needs to be a step outside of that and to be more of the planet, of life in general, of perhaps even of being in general, to look at it in that way and to step out of that human framework of being, you know, uh, being too too in it, too comfortable. Um, but it's the question of why, why, why is it so difficult to translate those anxieties into anything practicable? 
Yes, well, they would say this is a function of uh, modern epistemology, the separation of nature and human. So what drives us to change? Well, data. We present more and more data on warming seas and atmospheric conditions and so on. But as we all know, that data does not correlate to changed attitudes and behavior. Um, why not? Because in some ways we fail to see ourselves of the world. Um, the world is out there, uh, ready to be uh, mastered, governed and so on by ourselves. Um, and that, as we've discussed before, can lead to this paralysis of action. Um, maybe the scale seems just too big as you watch that Attenborough documentary. And we can't really encompass the wholesale change of thinking that's needed. That stop sign is too big to get around for us. Um, so what they're trying to do is to say, rather than see humans as above or separated from the world, able to harness its resources in order to ensure this trajectory of endless development, we need to see ourselves as embedded within, as an engendering factor. We are in a chain of cause, we're in a, a network of cause and effect in this world. And it's only when we begin to think that way that our, our, our attitudes and behavior will change. There's a whole new ethics available here that will come with this new ecological class. So if you want, if you push me on the sort of motto of the whole text, I'd potentially offer um, this one um, in note number 29. They say, quote, the more dependent we are, the better. The more dependent we are, the better. So to be modern is to be uh, independent of our planetary situation, um, able to move in any direction we please, then to be part of the new ecological class is to realise one's dependence in the world. Uh, and that surely is going to generate a whole new uh, system of thought, new modes of behaviour, and indeed, a new ethics. Mm. This this is a something that has been a fair amount of scholarship on. I think in recent years, that's interesting. And 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 sort of when you realise it, it's like why did we why did why have we brought about this separation? But it uh, when I was discussing Druidry with John Michael Greer, he pushed he pushed back and almost got a bit heated when in the way people speak about nature. So you'll often hear people say, well, we're going away for the weekend to get into nature as if nature is over there or uh, there's nature over there, but it's not here. I mean, and Greer and many others and also uh, yeah, many other thinkers would now begin to bring about this emphasis in Sarah, of course. Well, we are nature. We're fleshy beings who are full of blood and saliva and all kinds of things that we, you know, have become weirdly averse to. We are nature. We are uh, fleshy beings. Uh, the air that I'm currently in is nature. If I look out of my window, there is grass growing up between the cobblestones or whatever. There is no such, there isn't this separation. And this this notion that you said about realizing that we, we are always dependent or we need to be more dependent, I would uh, perhaps uh, just personally would say that it's not that we need to be more dependent. We simply are. And any notion of this separation or of like this this language of control as if we cannot be dependent at some point in time goes back to this notion of our nature is over there and uh, I'll, I'll deal with nature in a bit 
while it's over there. But for now, I'm in my comfortable, you know, play. It's just it, nature. Nature, it just is. I mean, it's uh, and and to realize that, for, don't know why or where that's come from. This notion of somehow this belief that we can just segregate ourselves from from nature or from the the the, the earth is is ridiculous. And we see this in political contestations all around us. What were the Indian farm protests of last year? What were the, in France, the Gilets Jaunes protests? What about indigenous communities resisting fracking? What about disputes over electric cars and lithium batteries and so on? These are all highly complex amalgamations of what previously would have been differentiated domains of nature and human and um, we're already living in the uh, sort of foreshadowings of these political contestations would the authors would say um and as we read our papers and say who on earth could resolve that particular dispute um that's t- so complicated because it involves human interests and the interests of a river or a mountain or an ecosystem well precisely that is the politics we'll need in the future, they say. And so this book is trying to formulate the sort of politics that will need to go alongside. Hmm. Well, I think one one contemporary, I consider it a minor, well, minor crisis, but I think it, it's the larger crisis writ large that we're talking about. Um, I can't remember where it is. It's Gre- the Greece Islands where there's the uh, their equivalent of... Um, large stones which are basically you know ancient ancient monuments which are going to be completely demolished because someone wants to build a diy store or whatever you know we hear about this kind of thing time and time again it's like well you know we need to build it the it's like the language of production whatever you want to call it the language of reason the language of quantification constantly self is is the language which the only language which we have and so it self-justifies itself but we don't have another grammar to speak on behalf something Sarah was trying to do for years and years and years speak on behalf of the object speak on behalf of nature uh talk about this contract or um we we we, we're reluctant to have a language because as soon as we try justify why we might need to defend nature defend a green space we revert to the grammar of quantification we we talk about uh i don't know practicality how much revenue is it going to bring for tourists uh i don't know someone's probably measured the beauty factor of it or something like this we revert to that language and there doesn't seem to be as of yet uh, another language to bring in because it seems to me that when you in a battle between quality and quantity quantity always wins because it can revert to well look at the numbers (laughs) um which to me is is useless and it's it's a degradation of everything which is good and and beautiful but there you go but uh this seems to be a beginning once again towards that that means of how we can even begin to talk in that sense and not fall prey to that other strange thing that always manages to interject itself and in that sense this book does make sense at the end of Latour's career just focusing on him um his turn to the environment, if you like, in the early 2000s was itself premised on two decades work in science and technology, understanding how, um, as it were, the the, the uh, 
the animated world of nature that's presented through science is anything but. This is a highly animated um, uh, ventriloquized nature given to us through the activity of humans and other actors in networks. Uh, the books around Facing Gaia in 2016 and onwards through this book after lockdown and Down to Earth 2017, all those were beginning to prepare this sort of um, change of language, change of grammar that I think we find in full formation in this final book, The Memo. So it is important that this was Latour's last published book there are other materials by the way sort of coming um mm. in the last few months and so on of his life but this is really the final book statement that he was offering to the world and it is the most applied um offering that he gives where would where would latour and schultz say we begin if 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 there is uh, a movement forward in this memo towards something uh could say ecologically productive I think they say, first of all, to look around and see the reality of the present situations of conflict and division for which we don't have ready-made categories. Categories of left and right don't fit well into the ecological conflicts that we're seeing. Um, they would probably suggest then to start describing and mapping out what the issues really are, independent of a priori political categories. So really work out what's at stake and then begin to define that shared horizon for collective action. Who are you standing shoulder to shoulder with? Um, you may disagree about uh, economy or um, or culture or religion, but your truest and highest value is to be now an ecological being, is to ensure that the planet itself survives and is uh, habitable for future generations and they, i mean they do have um they do suggest there are values already out there in the world that can help uh, they point to other moments of struggle and critique you know social movements socialisms feminisms post-colonialisms etc um these have had to find as it were a new grammar to function transversely across a settled order. What about indigenous people? Um, this is paragraph 43. Yes, here are groups of people already finely attuned to these engendering practices that moderns are going to have to find uh, if they want to flourish. What about the younger generations? This is paragraph 44. Um, Younger people are often dismissed, aren't they, as not yet fully engaged in the political domain. But for Latour and Schultz, these are signalling the sort of future um, that we will all need to work towards. And then they'll point to scientists, engineers, uh, innovators, gardeners, industrialists, ordinary citizens who are already living out in a proleptic way the values of this new ecological class. Religion, too, is there. Uh, this is now 46. Um, quote, religion, religious people provide, quote, huge forces and deep emotions that have already managed over the course of many years to channel ecological values. 
So uh, he'll once again call us to Pope Francis, Laudato Si, encyclical um, as a guide. So there's nothing, nothing entirely, we're not creating out of scratch here, but we're marshalling values that are forced upon us by the planetary situation, um, and we're bringing them together into a new system of think, thought, new system of ideas that can begin to crystallize into something genuinely political. And they really end the memo on that note, um, a note of hopefulness mm. uh, about the emergence, the real emergence of people who are no longer primarily motivated by the old struggles. Uh, they may still be there filtered in different ways, but primary alliances now are based around this ecological concern. Do you think there's a difference between hope and optimism? I think um, hope here would be the right word. They see anticipations of this around the world. We've already talked about a few of them. They talk at the end of the memo about the European Union itself as an institution able to think at its best transversely across different issues to be diplomatic in that sense, bringing in multiple voices and coalescing around a value that can function uh, ecologically. Um, so I think they are hopeful rather than merely optimistic. Are you optimistic or hopeful? I'm not opti- I'm not hopeful, I don't think, James, when I see the current UK political situation. Um, I think at the moment, as Kate Roweth has so helpfully points out across all sorts of media, we're still stuck in a discourse of growth. Um, it's very hard to find a political representative even able to voice an alternative to the uh, goal of growth, both primary political parties at the moment committed to growth, to enhance GDP, we're all anxious about falling into recession, which is the one thing we must never, ever do. Hmm. We do need a vision of flourishing in harmony with planetary boundaries that supersedes the vision of growth, development and progress, pure and simple. Um, but of course, we must move, we mustn't uh, either dismiss the fundamental ideas of growth, development and progress. To be human is to want to move forward, to want a better life, better life for your children and so on. Those are all noble aspirations, I would say. And so we don't want to have merely have the D in front of the word growth. Um, much better, I think, to talk in terms of flourishing, in terms of uh, we we should we should reclaim language of growth, prosperity, development, um, but frame them in a more in, in a, with greater solidarity and with greater awareness of the planetary boundaries within which we live. Mm. This was going to say. I think those, of course, human beings want a better, higher quality, more prosperous life, but within our current modern mindset we would think ah you know more more stuff more production more stuff faster better whatever and that's just completely wrong i think in terms of that that but i i wonder if there is an existential issue at foot here just to jump back to the religious language of 
if progress and if this this understanding of the world that we have at the moment as modern as the moderns as Latour often refers to us does see progress and growth especially or economic progress and growth especially as sort of the absolute uh, value the absolute values of everything really it's it's what sort of valueless and worthless unless it's growing and growing and more and more that degrowth and yeah, degrowth is almost becomes synonymous with death. Like there's this sort of strange fear of um, that your life is 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 over. You're a failure. Whatever word, whatever ne- negative connotation you want to apply to it, the degrowth in that sense becomes far more than than simply the slowing of consumption. It becomes uh, almost like the heres. Uh, it's almost a heresy. Because it, when we see this in economic language, because there is, I can't remember how they reframe it now. Is it posit, positive ungrowth or something like that? When things are going backwards, there's a way to, there's a way that it's it's explained, which is still in the positive. So it's a, it's like a positive, it's ridiculous, basically. But it's always a way to make it look like things are better. Um, Donald Trump was very good at this, by the way. He made everything sound great. And I think Schultz and Latour would agree with the donut model that there is still growth, material growth, as it were, needed for those within in the centre who are lacking the most basic um, securities, uh, material conditions in life. Um, but they're really trying to bring us, to use the title of another book, back down to earth to understand that we are embedded within a planetary situation and we can't proceed as if we were above and beyond that. He has a critique. They have a critique, as you probably read, of two groups of people. Uh, the first is an obvious critique. It's the globalized elites, the 1% who quite literally function uh, and live away from the surface of the planet. We see this in the various rockets they use to move away from the the surface of the planet Earth. But we see it symbolically in the sort of networks that function 20,000 feet above the Earth uh, as they zip around the world um, and live in a world of abstract financial flows and so on. So there's the critique of the 1%, but they also offer, and Latour does this elsewhere, a critique critique of, if you like, the 99%. And these are those who still do live down below, but not in the way that is called called for amongst this new political class. So this 99% actually, in response to the global elites, retrench. They live on the surface of the earth, if you like, in their communities, but they boundary those communities. They say, well, we we, we will live on the land, but we're going to close our borders. We're going to protect what we have, preserve, um, and so on. That all that Neither is that the vision of the new political class, the new ecological class that they have. Um, it's This is a universal vision for all humanity to live yes, down here on Earth, but not with these protectionist borders. Um, So here's a quote from note 24. The ecological class needs to fight on at least two fronts against an illusory globalization, 1%, and against a return inside the borders. 
since both of these movements are out of touch with issues of habitability. So we need to not fall off the horse on either side. We certainly don't want to become those who live, who have uh, so much that we can afford to, as it were, live away from the planet Earth. But neither do we want to become those who retrench, who occupy a space in a defensive and um, therefore selfish way. So it's some third way that's envisaged here. Um and that will require a redefinition of all sorts of terms that are current in contemporary political parlance, territory, land, nation state, people, border, bounder, uh, boundary, international relations, attachment. All these words need to be nudged and jostled in light of the new ecological class that they predict is coming. Mm. Well, a lot of them don't even make sort of make sense anymore. I mean, just in light of what's in light of the way things are going. I mean, you talk about the situation in the UK. It almost seems to me like we don't actually have a a government really. It's it's this strange autonomous thing which is going on in the background. But really, just in the space of my lifetime, it feels like everyone is completely detached from it, and there's no real. Uh, a lot of people just shrieking over each other and nothing you know i guess no one's really in charge is what it seems and everything's running itself but where is it running to we don't really know um and think of that comment by theresa may remember her when she was <laughs> prime minister in the post brexit vote era who criticized as she called it the citizens of nowhere now of course that was a critique of that one percent those who are able to jet around and don't really belong but of course, veiled in that comment was a, um, if not a celebration, then an implicit affirmation of those who seek to close the borders of Britain, of Brexit Britain, who seek to say, this is our country and no one else shall be here. Um, so that was an intimation of that negative relationship to the land, which is one of ownership um, and therefore exclusion of others. And it's that they're, they're threading the needle, aren't they, in this book to try to find that third way between the global elites, but also the retrent, the movement of retrenchment, uh, which is itself a reaction to uh, globalization. So we understand the dynamics here, but we need to find that third way. And that's what they trace for us in this new ecological class. And um, I think this book is so valuable uh, it has begun to have an influence, as we said at the beginning, in some political situations. And I think in Brexit Britain, this sort of vision is so desperately needed. Odd question. Do you see a philosophy of life beneath this text? I do. And Adam Tooze has written articles on Latour in Tour's relationship to sort of Labour's philosophy traditions. But really, we're trying to flatten, aren't we, humans? Humans aren't away from the world. We're not separate from the world. We have a different agency footprint, for sure. Uh, Latour never tries to suggest that humans are um, eat, uh, on. Uh, uh, there's no difference between humans, animals, and non-human beings, and so on. But he's saying um, all of life matters uh, in the functioning of this Earth system. Uh, we know that from Earth system science, Gaia theory, and so on. So he's calling us back to understand our place within the Earth system. 
Um, in that sense, it's a Laban's philosophy, I would say. What's the inverse of a Laban's philosophy? People who are... Because it just... It, it, I think there's a problem with embodiment. I'm probably getting way too abstract here, but there's a problem with that. I think there's a real problem with embodiment. And the if your values are of production, consumption, increase, it al it's almost as if we're... Um, we grasp at the value without any real apprehension or acknowledgement of the thing that we retrieve. So it's almost we consume because the value is to consume, not for the actual thing that you end up with. Because, you know, I mean, you could turn to a countless number of philosophers for this, you know, someone such as Lacan. Like, once you get your desire, you always want to move on. And we're sort of caught in that trap as well. But um, we're not really here because we're caught in values which are always in the future. And I think. I don't know, to bring it... It just seems there's something beneath this to do with really being a human being in the sense of a natural animal and that philosophy of life where you really bring it right back down to... I don't know, it's, you know, I imagine sitting around a campfire with Michel Serre eating the salad once again, right? And and really being in your body and uh, doing that. I don't know why I saw that there, but there's something very uh, something very embodied about the text, about moving away from values which cause you to be completely away from yourself and it's it's a calling to, it's a it's an invitation to a higher form of freedom they would say uh to be modern to sense oneself liberated from all attachments to the material conditions around us is not real freedom even though it feels like it or might feel like it so here's a quote from 28 um Quote, being free changes meaning when it's a question of getting used to finally depending on what supports our existence. So true freedom, uh, this is now me, is not an absence of responsibility and attachment to the world out there, but an embedded, uh, an understanding of one's embeddedness within the world and to all other beings. Um, and that's a vision of freedom that I think, you know, I've trying been trying to grow into over recent years i think that can be informed by religion in my case by a christian faith but by other um religions as well other value systems also um we need to discover to uncover the freedom that comes from understanding ourselves as earthbound um rather than as able to live away from this land or so bounded by a particular territory that there's no sense of the whole. Hmm. Is there anything you'd like to add about the text that you feel is key that we haven't touched upon? Just to commend this book, really. And there might, it's, it's, it's readable within the hour, if you like. Uh, in that sense, it truly is a, a memo. It's something um, with a certain utility and pragmatism to it. But I think we'd be honouring Bruno's legacy and taking forward Nikolai's you know, ongoing work if we were to uh, show this text to people that can begin to integrate it into real-life politics. Um, and it's been woefully underrepresented in the last year or so in our UK context, I would suggest. So take this, you know, take this text... And let's begin to use it and apply it. Mm -hmm. 
And yeah, if you want to take this text, then the, the links will be in the description below for the Wiley website uh, for those that want to get a copy. And um, yeah, I feel it's we've we've done. I think we've done the text justice. Um, yeah, Tim Howes, it's been a great conversation once again. Thanks very much. Thank you, James.